the breath. <coughs> Excuse me. Does it work? Yeah. The breath can be helpful in many ways, not simply as a primary object as we've been using it uh, for more than a day now, but even in listening to a talk. Experiment with it. See if it helps you. Can you all hear me in the back? I don't have a whole lot of voice left. Can you? You can hear. Thank you. If while you're listening, you keep the breath in mind, that is, stay in touch with the breathing in a light way, so that it's in the background and mainly what you're doing is listening. But see if the breath doesn't help you. Stay alert and awake. Uh, In the questions this morning and this afternoon, it seemed there were a few strong interests and questions that were not uh, answered sufficiently. some of it of necessity when we have almost half the people are totally new to the practice. Um, seem to be something like this. Uh, some interest in what is samadhi and vipassana? How are they different? We hear these words, but we're not quite sure what they mean. And I would say the most frequently asked question or area explored or wish to be explored has to do with physical pain. Right. Okay. And so, um, some concern about how to work with physical pain. And perhaps what we can do then is uh, just very briefly sketch out something about Samadhi work and and insight work, vipassana, and bring them together and uh, use physical pain as an example. There isn't an ironclad distinction between samadhi and vipassana. For teaching purposes, we separate them. But, for example, samadhi is present all the time. Let's say if you hold up a glass of water, there's some samadhi involved. In other words, all of us have, uh, if you've never heard of meditation, we already have the ability to concentrate to some degree. Otherwise, we, the, the work of the world can, would never happen. So there's some samadhi in everything we do. Now, not all samadhi is right samadhi. For example, it takes a tremendous amount of concentration to be a safe cracker. Right? But that's wrong concentration. Bad. Okay. But it takes a certain skill. I mean, you'd have to be very, very, in a certain way, quite calm, based on what I know from the movies anyway, uh, with a very sh- certain amount of time. Usually the police are on their way over. And so you've got to get the job done. You've got to be very precise. So there are many kinds of activities that take concentration, uh, but they aren't exactly what we're talking about. 
So you already have it. We already have some. And all we're doing is trying to intensify it to help it develop and grow. Um, maybe this old Indian story will be of some help in, as we, uh, in, in attempting to clarify what these two very closely related and interdependent practices are. <clears throat> there was a king in India who was not only a king, but a highly advanced yogi, supposedly enlightened. And there was a young yogi who was impressed by this and wanted to know how is it possible for someone to have all the duties of being a king and also uh, to be enlightened, to be a yogi. So he asked the king if he would teach him, and the king said yes. And he sent, him, sent this uh, uh, young yogi through the palace uh, with a big bowl of hot oil. The story varies sometimes, it's some, it doesn't matter. Okay. Uh, on his head, balanced on his head, and said, go through each and every room in the palace and see if you can come back without spilling one drop. And so the yogi did that, went through every room of the palace, um, balancing this um, container on his head with hot oil, and came back and was just jubilant. Said, yeah, I did it. I didn't spill anything. So then the king asked him, well, okay, great. Now what's going on in the palace? You know, any intrigues? What love affairs are going on? Any political uh, problems coming up in the, in the palace? What's happening? You were just in all over the palace, and the person was just stunned. He said, I don't know. I was just so concentrated on not spilling the oil that I just moved through each room, but I don't have a clue as to what's going on in the palace. So he said, okay, now do the same thing. Go through the entire palace again. Don't spill any oil. But when you come back, have a story to tell me. You know, tell me what's going on. Now, the first, don't take these too literally, but I hope they're somewhat helpful. The first is samadhi. That is just that ability to uh, be steady, to be calm. And that took the person through the palace without spilling oil. But in the process of carrying that out, there wasn't a whole lot of discernment. There wasn't a whole lot of attentiveness in a more open way as to the characteristics or the details of what was happening. And so, the skill of the first part, the first part of the journey, developed on carrying the oil, at least to bring it over to our practice, is intended to then be brought, be brought into the second task, which is uh, a mind that's steady and calm, presumably can know more, can go more deeply, can see more clearly, can be more discerning, can develop wisdom. And so, in a way, that's what it is, in a nutshell. Okay, um, one uh, question that came up a lot and understandably by a lot of the people who are very new is, it's not simply what is Vipassana and what is Samadhi, it's why do we do this? You know, why do we, why do we bother with all of this? I mean, what's the point? What, are, what is this all about? Um, there's no ambiguity in the teachings of the Buddha as to what it's about. And so the best I can do is just transmit that to you. 
he said what it's about is one thing and one thing only, and that's the elimination of suffering, elimination of sorrow from the human condition. And put more specifically, um, I'll have to introduce another term called kilesas, sometimes translated, for those of you who read books on these things, as defilements or mental afflictions or toxins or, the th- or poisons. And these uh, usually are translated as greed or a, um, that in us which is always wanting something, always feels wanting, lacking and wants to correct that lack. Hatred or aggression or aversion and then delusion or confusion or unawareness. And those three energies, according to this teaching, are embedded in the human heart. Now, when I say heart here, um, this is a word that some people use for, uh, for the Pali word chitta, which is sometimes translated as mind, and that's fine, but it's bigger than what we think of as mind. It's not just the psychological functions that we're very familiar with. It's actually quite vast, so vast that a totally purified chitta or a totally purified heart is nirvana. And the arhat, I'm I'm introducing some new terms for some of you beginners, which is the archetype of, say, the, the meditator who's fulfilled the journey, is someone whose heart has been totally purified of these kilesas or these toxins, greed, hatred, and delusion. They've been let go of. And so there's just purity. Now the heart that is pure always was pure. So no more pure than our hearts. This is the teaching. So that at this moment, each one of us is as pure as the Buddha ever was. The only thing is we don't know it, we're not in touch with it, it isn't manifesting because the heart is entangled, in some cases suffocating, enveloped by these kilesas. These tendencies which are very powerful and are prevalent, they're happening a lot during a typical day for each one of us. It's a normal thing for a human being. The practice has to do with throwing our support on behalf of the heart behind wisdom. That is, the typical starting point for a human being is for the kilesas to be dominant, for the heart to pretty much be under the control of these tendencies, enslaved to these tendencies. The heart, uh, in a sense, obeying the commands of the kilesas which only turn uh, out to hurt it so that the heart thinks things which hurt it. It throws up things about itself which hurt it. It does things in the world which perhaps promise to produce happiness but which don't. And so that means that the, the human heart is by and large under the domination of these kilesas. Hit that person, okay. In other words, it's kind of all day long telling us things to do. And we think we're being very independent, but actually we're enslaved to our mind. Our real boss is the mind. The mind is telling, pushing us around all day long. 
Don't like that person. They're awful. Okay, I won't. <laughs> that person's not looking. Take their cookie. Okay, I will. And we think that we're doing it. We're in control. But actually, as you get to observe the mind more carefully, you'll see that there are forces in a very large space that are influences which needn't be honored. Moreover, they aren't the final statement in terms of the question, who am I? Not at all. And so, the practice is an attempt to strengthen, in a way it's an epic struggle, like any of the classic struggles. And the struggle is between the kilesas, which definitely have the upper hand, typically in a human being, especially one who is uh, perhaps not on any spiritual path, but who knows, and wisdom. Now, wisdom is that in us, which it's a kind of intelligence here going well beyond what we think of as intelligence. It's not IQ or logical powers as wonderful as those qualities are. It's good to have a mind that works, that can add and subtract and figure things out. It's an asset. But intelligence, as I'm using it here, goes well beyond that. Wisdom is that which knows. It knows how to live. It knows what to do. It knows what's right. It's that which knows. Now, this capacity is very much um, the weaker of the two forces. If you think of the heart as being um, what is struggled for, what is being struggled for, the kalesas on the one hand are dominating it, and wisdom, because we all have some wisdom too, some very wonderful notions and intimations and thoughts and directions come up for us as well. However, all too often, they're overwhelmed by the other force. The practice is to systematically and carefully, through a variety of practices really, strengthen our capacity to see things, to finally convince, to finally convince the heart that to follow the ways of the kilesas is destructive. It's like educating a child, in a sense. It's finally for wisdom to be able to, in such a convincing way, in such a compelling way, deliver its truth to the heart, that the heart has no choice but to let go of these destructive patterns, which do nothing but harm it, which scorch it, the Buddha said the whole world is on fire in a very famous sermon called the Fire Sermon. On fire with greed, on fire with hatred, on fire with delusion. Long before the nuclear age and even the nuclear age, the real problem is not nuclear weapons. It's not weapons at all. Everyone's concerned now with you know, semi-automatic weapons and we have to cut off the supply of this. It's the calaces again. What's on... If, the, the weapons are dangerous because the minds, not only that have created them out of a need for them or a perceived need for them, but also the minds that operate these weapons. The weapons themselves are just stuff. And there are some who feel that in the modern world the Kalesas are have become extraordinarily powerful because of the breakdown of the family, the breakdown of religion, 
uh, it's a, a field day. There may be some truth to this. I don't know. And I'm not really interested in speculating because what's most important is for each one of us to take our own condition to heart, to examine ourselves and to see in our own life from moment to moment the ways in which the heart throws up directives, feelings, issues, which uh, we follow and which then produce suffering rather than happiness. And so how do we strengthen the wisdom factor? How can we get that to be so strong so that the heart can't fail to get the message? Well, samadhi is one thing that's needed. That is, for example, probably most of you know that one important law in, or principle in this practice is the clear recognition of the impermanence of everything. Seeing that law, that everything is inconstant, everything is changing, things change. They even made a movie about it now. Must be true. So we already know that, don't we? So why are great? We all, would we have to come here and have pains in our back and our knees? Everything's impermanent. Let's live in accordance with that. Let's straighten our lives out. If impermanence is true, let's find out how to live so that we live appropriately. But we know it, but it doesn't have the depth. The heart needs a really strong teaching. And until it gets it, it's going to live as everything is permanent. And so that even though we know that things change, we need uh, the help of the practice. For example, when samadhi gets stronger, when the mind becomes more concentrated, there's a very uh, close relationship between the degree to which the mind is concentrated and the degree to the level of wisdom that's accessible. As the mind becomes stronger, clearer, more stable, it obviously can go deeper. The level of its discernment can be more profound. So that seeing impermanence, you can see it and you can see it. So that at one point, I think it was the Buddha was asked, how uh, how are these arhats who are people who have finished the journey different than the rest of us? And he said, well, one way is that they know that everything that arises passes away. And, you, you know, maybe we would all say in unison, well, we know that. But do we? Probably not. We don't really know that everything that arises passes away. Now, that simple statement has extraordinarily profound consequences for all of us. And it's not going to be of much help for me to rattle them off. I mean, we have, the books are full of the consequences. It's more as we begin to penetrate into our own body, into our own heart, as we examine what we call personal identity. What is is a person? Who am I? But not in a speculative, um, kind of academic way, but rather begin to look at the nature of what we call us and begin to see the law of impermanence at work and begin to see it in a deeper and deeper way until it becomes so deep that the heart has no choice 
but to happily follow wisdom rather than as it is now so often following these kalesas which lead it into trouble. Now, the practice is about the diminishing the power and finally eliminating the control of the kalesas. It's a purification process in which samadhi plays an important part and, of course, wisdom itself plays uh, an extraordinarily important part. Let me just very briefly... hmm, very briefly, sketch out some ways in which uh, your beginning samadhi practice can be of some help in regard to these kalesas. You didn't know you had them probably until today. Now you have a new affliction. You're going to go home, I have kalesas. I have three kalesas. (laughs) I thought I only had an eating problem or a drinking problem. But actually, those are the kalesas, you see. They're, they're in back of everything. One of the messages, or one of the... Uh, you see, you're already developing wisdom if you can begin to see that you don't have to slavishly go after everything that turns up in the mind, grasp onto it, and then be taken, up, and then be taken on a trip by it. Or you don't have to identify with absolutely everything that turns up. So that let's say typically you're sitting and the samadhi practice, the instructions themselves, are tremendously beneficial, potentially. Because so many of the possibilities that come up in the mind during the day and even at night in dreams don't lead to peace. They're disturbing. A lot of our thoughts, a lot of our moods, Some of them, of course, a lot of it is very obvious. I hope I'm not saying anything that's new. And some of it's more subtle. When you listen more carefully, you'll hear all of what the mind is preoccupied with, how it spends its time. I've asked my mind, how do you spend your day? I mean, what do you do? (laughs) Sometimes I've done an inventory on it, and it's ridiculous. What it, what it considers spend, how it spends its time. I mean, what it, how it puts in time. Unless we do something about it, that's what it's going to do. Okay, so that these tendencies come up, and let's say, by and large, in a, a typical mind that has not gone through any training whatsoever, much of the time we grasp onto these, let's say, expressions of greed, hatred, and delusion that turn up in the mind, and we grasp onto them, and then we're taken on a trip by them. And perhaps we feel angry, or we feel depressed, or we feel uh, deprived. We feel very confused or in conflict because something came up, and then we grabbed onto it and made it real. It's like breathing air into a balloon and then believing what the balloon says. There's something written on it. Or like... as painting dragons, supposedly one, uh, again, I, I don't know how true any of these stories are, uh, one ancient Chinese artist who was expert in painting dragons, one day did such a good job that he walked into his studio and just ran out terrified. What he was frightened of was one of the dragons that he had painted. He just So that's what we're doing, essentially. We believe in our own stuff. Right, it's the mind 
conjures up this stuff, we grasp onto it, we blow life into it, and then we're—it's we, all—it's a, a one-person show. It's a monologue. We're all monologists, <laughs> creating these things, which then we run away from, and then we need techniques to help us cure the problem that we've made. We're—we're we're doing the whole thing. You know, showing the movie, selling popcorn. We're the audience. <laughs> Okay, so now a simple, the Buddha gave us a very simple alternative, which didn't occur to most of us. Maybe to none of us. Never occurred to me. Did anyone, when you were growing up, say that you could watch your breath instead of get caught up in all this stuff? (laughs) One of your grammar school teachers? I doubt it. Okay. So what we're learning is, okay, these things come up. Just, you know the instructions by now. Just watch it come, watch it go. But... Be with the in-breath, be with the out-breath. Well, even though we haven't been saying too much about what that's accomplishing, but you can see one thing that it might accomplish, especially as you're more able to do this, is that you're short-circuiting that whole dynamic of where we keep getting caught in the productions of the mind, the concoctions of the mind. We now have a new option, which is instead of being taken along, enslaved by these things, we say, thank you very much, here comes depression. Come on, it's time to be depressed again. Thank you very much. I'm going back to my breath. Okay. Now, it's not eliminating depression. It's not uprooting it. But especially as you become more able to carry out the instructions, you learn that more and more you have a place, that a, a kind of a, a sanctuary. As the samadhi gets deeper, it becomes like a home. It's not a final home. But it is a resting place which we need, very, in fact, desperately. We need to rest from all of the turmoil that the mind throws up and has been throwing up for many, many years. Some would say many lifetimes. Okay, so as the capacity to stay with one object develops, we create a place of stability which we can go to as an option rather than be taken on a journey by these tendencies which are destructive. Now, once we do that, to some degree, the energy of the kalesas are weakened a little bit. It's simply like not exercising that capacity. If you keep practicing being depressed, then the depression muscle is going to get stronger. But how about if now and then you don't do it? Say, no, I don't think I'm so happy to be depressed today. Thanks very much, but I think I'll just breathe instead. And so we let go of that and we turn towards something else. We turn away from some of these destructive tendencies or kilesas and we absorb ourselves in something that's relatively wholesome and unproblematic. Now, as your samadhi develops, you can see that your ability to do this grows quite a bit. So you now have, you're not as helpless. Okay, now, part of the approach of, of the samadhi and I don't remember if it was the morning or the afternoon, but it was the afternoon. We don't have time, but the depth of stillness that's possible is really quite extraordinary, so that it is possible to have a home that's quite a stable place to drop into and to rest. That is, as the samadhi becomes a more normal part of your life, not something just that you do at IMS on a weekend or whatever, and as it really becomes genuinely strong and part of you, 
then it's possible to rest the heart. Because there are no problems when you're absorbed. And it's not really the breath. The breath is the medium that takes us to pure awareness, we can call it. Now, again, it isn't our final home and you wouldn't want to stay there forever. Once you've rested up, let's say, been rejuvenated, revitalized, by simply having no, let's say, no uh, troublesome thoughts or not much potency in them because you're so absorbed in the breath. See, a lot of suffering is having unwanted thoughts. I mean, it's, it's, it's having unwanted thoughts. We have a lot of thoughts that we don't want. We don't want to have them. But it doesn't matter. They come anyway. Now, when the mind isn't thinking, then it doesn't have these unwanted thoughts. And it's like dream-free sleep. We're happy at least a few hours a night. Because even in dreams, we have unwanted thoughts. I'm in a jungle. I'm going to be eaten up by a tiger. There's no jungle. There's no tiger. Just a little bit hot. You overate. And so now it's a new way to suffer. And then you wake up and we're condescendingly joyful. Oh, there really wasn't a... It was just a dream. I'm okay. But what if it's the same thing with what we're doing in the daytime? In other words, if our relationship to a lot of our daytime productions of the mind is not that different from our relationship to the dream, the dream and sometimes the nightmare that's produced. Kind of daydreams. And what if, if we saw through some of those? Okay. Samadhi provides us not only with stability, but a place to heal. Because it provides us with a certain happiness that's very necessary for human beings. We all need it. And it's a happiness that's not dependent on external conditions. Except in so far as we're putting together the right conditions to get to samadhi. Because when you drop into that place, you can feel happy and no one has told you that you're handsome or beautiful or intelligent. No one's given you a lot of money as a present. It isn't necessarily a beautiful day. You look around and you can't account for How come I'm so happy now? I shouldn't be this happy. I'm not entitled to be this happy. No one has done something for me. I haven't gotten something. Well, it's nice if you can have a kind of happiness that's just inside waiting to be tapped. And truthfully, that's what samadhi provides us with. It's not the ultimate happiness, but it's extraordinary. Now, it has a double edge and one wrong concentration, one meaning of wrong samadhi, is when we drop roots there and we say, great, I found the end of the journey. We get very attached to the joys of concentration or some of the psychic powers that come from it. All kinds of visions and special seeing that can come from it. And so at some point, when you rest, it becomes time to go to work again. No one wants to sleep forever. No matter how inviting a bed looks, at a certain point, even that becomes a drag. Like, you know, I'm t- I've been asleep for 18 hours. I've just got to get up. I've got to do something now. And that's where Vipassana comes in. So let's say the heart has tasted a bit of joy, a bit of peace, in dropping into this place of stability that samadhi helps us develop. It's now, I'm I'm talking about our practice, you're in a much better 
situation or condition to investigate, <clears throat> to probe into yourself, to find out all the things that we say we want to find out about. Self-inquiry, self-understanding, self-knowledge. Now, a lot of what we have to work with are fears. Loneliness, boredom, all kinds of anxieties and moods that we don't like. Now, if the heart can get some degree of happiness from its samadhi, from its samadhi work, then it has a fighting chance, a much better chance, of looking at states like loneliness, states like anxiety, states like fear. I mean, the other day it struck me as quite hilarious that a lot of uh, what I was doing, that is, the practice of developing samadhi, was to get me to be happy enough to look at my unhappiness. Do you know what I'm trying to say? Because uh, in, to look at it in a way in which I can do, really do something about it. Because unless there's some degree of fulfillment or stability, every time the loneliness or the fear comes up, we're just blown away. We're swallowed. We drown in it. So I get it. I'm, I'm getting happy enough so that I can look at my unhappiness. Strange. But I guess it's necessary. So, okay. And so then investigation takes place, and that's the work of Vipassana. Beginning to probe into the body and into the mind, beginning to really see impermanence at work. If there's suffering, to be able to, to really see it. If there's emotional resistance to our suffering, to be able to see that. To examine just what we mean by self. What is this thing that it seems like everything is being lived for? Like the whole planet is devoted to satisfying someone's self. Lots of individual selves. What is that? Beginning to actually investigate and to see what is a human, this word self, what is it really? And so now we're doing the work of wisdom. Now, in order to um, apply some of this in a brief way to physical pain, we're going to have to cut into the walking meditation. I bet you're broken hearted about that. Can you, can you put up with it? Good. Am I forgiven? <laughs> okay. Okay, so now we're investigating, but you also can't investigate forever. You get tired of probing and discerning and looking at things, so then you drop back into samadhi. And so the two really work as very good friends, like the right and left hand, like the right and left leg. They, they work together. One hand washes another. When it's time for the work of samadhi and calm, you, you use that mode of practice. When it's time to investigate, you use that mode of practice. And after a while, you become artful in learning how to integrate these. So that it isn't even integrating them. They just, they, at some, they become like one thing. It's sort of attention knowing which mode it should be using at, at a given moment. Should it be resting in itself? Or should it be coming out of itself in order to explore and see what's what? Now, the seeing what's what is the work of wisdom. And as the samadhi gets deeper, the potential for the wisdom gets deeper. As wisdom gets deeper, it's possible to go deeper into samadhi. They also strengthen each other. So, if you hear anyone say, um, 
well, Vipassana is great, but Samadhi is just, or Shamatha, that's just like it's a low-class practice. Or the other way around. It's just a really foolishness. I mean, there's no uh, point in separating the two. The Both of them are needed. They're, it's a, an organic entity. It's an organic uh, partnership. Okay, so now we, let's say we have physical pain. And I'm going to try to breathe as brief as I can. I'm not giving you the, some definitive way of investigating physical pain because as you start to, as the mind calms down and then starts to learn how to investigate, becoming more discerning, it becomes more, uh, it develops more ingenuity. This isn't a mechanical practice. At first we have to give you instructions and it's like drill. It's more like army style, you know, breathe in, breathe out, get back to that, breathe in, breathe out, get back, walk, sit, walk, schedules, you know, be on time, you know, etc. Be quiet, don't read. But more and more it becomes artful and becomes very much individual. You have to make the practice your own and express it in your own unique way, even though the principles are universal it'll be put together in a totally different way by each one of us. Even in such matters as sitting and walking, some people will walk a lot and sit not as much. Some people will sit a lot and hardly walk in terms of formal practice. And so it is with investigating physical pain. So I'm just going to sketch out one beginnings, one beginning of it. And those of you who are new, try it and see what it leads to. It should at very least help cut down on the sorrow that comes to us when we have physical pain. I'm making a distinction between suffering and pain. Okay, so you have some physical pain in the body. Right now, actually, it's beginning for me in my right ankle. Let me make a number of distinctions. These come out of uh, the Buddha's teaching. We don't have time for... Uh, technical names for what they are, but for those who are interested, it has to do with the khandas, the five aggregates. It can also be looked at in a slightly different way. Components of a human being, psychophysical components of a human being. So there's the body, what we call ankle, right? There's the body. And that's one aspect of what a person is, body. And it's one very important realm to contemplate, to get to know the body very, very well. What is the nature of the body? What's its true nature? Another area is feelings. They're very close, but they're also different. For example, at one point, my ankle did not have unpleasant feelings in it. Feelings here meaning sensations. It was fine. It was a nice ankle. And then a few moments ago, suddenly throb, throb, throb started to appear in the ankle. Now, the ankle, the body is one thing to discriminate and to separate out and sort out from the feelings, which is, ouch, starting to hurt. Well, not even hurt's the wrong word. That comes, the mind decides that. It's just throb, throb, throb. Okay, so there's ankle, that's body. Then there's also throb, 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 which is feeling, unpleasant. It could also be, it was somewhat pleasant before, more neutral though. And now there's another distinction that can be made. Now this is the part of the work of discernment. And the degree to which the mind has dropped into samadhi and is calm and stable 
it's also more able to carry out what I'm talking about, as you'll see in a moment. So now we have a body, we have feelings, and we also move to there's something in the mind that makes up stories about what's happening. It kind of labels things, and then it makes up interpretations about these labels. So throb, throb, throb can become whatever the mind decides it wants to make it into. Oh my God, this is awful. I hate this. I'm in such pain. It reminds me of that time after my injury. And I, you know, it can do whatever it wants to. It can proliferate. It will label it. Once it calls it pain, it's off and running. Pain is not a good term. We don't like pain. And then it can do what it wants to do. And we don't have control. It's not like you're writing a script. The mind is writing it for you. You don't have to worry. It will start making up stories and concocting things and images and all, you know, future things that are going to happen to you if you keep sitting this way. Parts of the body that are going to be permanently damaged. And it might be true. I'm not saying that there isn't some intelligence there. If you're a neurologist, you see some of this, as we found out in the morning group. And you know exactly what's going wrong. Okay. So there's a body. This body sometimes has pleasant or unpleasant or neutral feelings. And then the mind starts labeling these feelings and then interpreting them. And then there's something in us that knows. It's like, an, it's just, just knows. It, the reason I can say that is that it can be aimed at the, at the ankle it can, and knows that the, here's ankle. And then suddenly throb, throb starts and it picks that up too. It's a, it feels, it's not the throb, throb, but it's that which knows throb, throb. And then the thinking starts in the mind. Oh my God, pain in my ankle. This is terrible. How much more? When is that bell going to ring? Um, this knowing can hear thinking happening. Because thinking is another... It's, it's starting to sort out these realms. Here's body. Here's feelings. Here are these thoughts about the feelings. And then there's this, other, this knowing capacity, which is, again, independent. So you see these realms? Now, one of the main functions of investigation is to be able to sort like this, is to separate this from that. Why? Who cares? Is it just academic, Buddhist academic psychology? One of the main reasons that we suffer so is that we make a self out of everything or out of many things. And so once the, there's this throb, throb in the ankle, one of the main things that thought does is it decides that this is me. In other words, it appropriates those feelings. It takes hold of them and it says, this is my ankle, which is feeling these awful pains. I'm in pain, poor me. This reminds me of a time when five years ago when I had this and self-pity starts to well up. It starts to imagine a horrible future. You know, where you're in some emergency room. I don't know if Barry even has an emergency room. Is there one in Barry? Oh, this is it. This is the emergency room. <laughs> you're right. And I'm on duty, huh? Overnight duty. When you start to investigate like this, what it does is it severs that bridge between the body and the mind. And you begin to see that what's happening to the body is what's happening to the body. That's one event. 
what's happening to the mind is what's happening to the mind. What the mind is making up about that is another event. It's not saying they're not related. They seem to be. Certain sensations in the ankle go a certain way and the mind makes up stories that go in that direction. But as you'll get to know, if you don't already know this, the mind is not necessarily your most reliable friend. (laughs) It is both our best friend and our worst enemy. Now, part of the work of wisdom is to make it actually our heart, when stripped of all of this, of the Kalesis, is our best friend. There's nothing more precious. You could say it's the most precious thing in the whole universe, is our heart. You could say that that's really what we are. Finally, when all of the stories are stripped away and what's really left So if in the process of investigation we're able to see what's what and be able to tell the difference between what's happening in the ankle, again, we're not saying it's psychosomatic that you're imagining pain in the ankle. There are real sensations there. And sometimes you should shift your posture. Perhaps you could hurt yourself. So I'm not saying it's an imaginary thing at all. But what I am saying is that what the mind makes up about what's happening in the ankle is problematic. It's, it's got quite a, it has a poetic license. It's shameless. It can make up whatever it wants to about the ankle. And fortunately for us, we have also a capacity of knowing. This awareness that can see all of this going on. Now, in the process of investigation, this is the work of wisdom, we minimize the possibility of selfing happening, of this I and mind claiming the particular sensations, building it into a self, and then I'm in pain, my ankle, and then you have suffering, not just physical pain. Now, the Buddha was once asked, what's the difference between the way in which enlightened people and the way in which regular people like ourselves experience physical pain when they have pain in the body? And he said, well, uh, enlightened people, when they have pain in the body, it's like they're hit with one dart. But most people... When they have pain in the body, it's like they've been hit with two darts. One dart is the body, and then the other dart is the mind. Because once the mind starts cooking and deciding what's happening to you, then you have suffering, not just pain. Okay, I'll leave you with an image that has helped some people and is silly for other people. I don't know. I hope it helps at least a few of you. It comes out of our culture, and maybe it can help you grasp the only purpose of giving this image is if it helps you grasp the fact that investigation, that discernment of understanding how your mind and body work are a way of freeing you from unnecessary suffering. It's not mere academic knowledge. This kind of understanding couldn't be more practical because it helps you. It works. Okay, let's say you're watching a basketball game on a very large TV set. Color, very clear, and you also know everything there is to know about basketball. And you know that both teams... So you could sit there and be perfectly able to understand what's going on. You just look at it and you'll be having your experience of what's going on in front of you on the set. But someone has decided that we need someone else to tell us what's happening. They're called an announcer. And they're paid a lot of money to tell us what's happening. So while you're watching what's happening, 
someone else, and they're, in a sense, an actor. You know, They're trained to evoke certain moods in us, and if they're for the home team, you know, the words that are chosen, the affect is one way, and the visiting team, it's another way. And so while we're looking at what is sometimes called a boob tube, we're looking at it and being fed into it so that what we finally experience is a, a blending of the images which are about the game, which we can perfectly well see by ourselves, plus this announcer with enormous enthusiasm about certain things. And if there's no investigation, of course, the outcome is a certain effect, which goes unexamined. Now, if you, and I've done this, turn the sound off and watch the game. It's a somewhat different experience. Then turn it back on again and hear the announcers start cooking again. Then turn it off. You begin to see, oh, it's, it's, there's the announcer. You know, he's making up stories about what's happening. There's the actuality, or in our case, the physical sensations. That's just what, what's happening. No more, no less. It's right in front of you. And there's something in us that can sort out by investigation and separate and be able to tell the difference so that we can understand this is what's happening. This is the game. This is what's being added to the game or subtracted from the game by this man who's paid to do it in a certain way. Now, obviously, the commentator is, is our own mind for us, which is constantly painting pictures about what's happening to us. The pictures are about what's happening. They're not what's happening. And I'm not saying they have no value. Uh, but it's very important to, be, to know that a thought is a thought, a bodily sensation is a bodily sensation, and so forth. Okay, the next time you feel that you have some bodily discomfort, which will probably be about two minutes from now, <laughs> or 15 minutes from now, we start to sit again, Bring your attention, if, it ta- if it's strong enough to take you from the breath, bring your attention to this physical discomfort. Now, if you have, as the samadhi gets stronger, you'll be able to stick to the physical pain more. You won't be pushed around by it. And you'll also be able to, like, while staying with it, move back and forth. While staying with the physical pain, oh, here's mine making up stories about it. Oh, here's the knowing capacity. Something in me that knows that the mind is doing this and knows that this is physical and begin to see how the whole process works. As you do that, you start to release yourself from a lot of unnecessary suffering. There still will be pain, I'm sorry to say, in your ankle, although sometimes even that leaves. But often what you'll see, it's not what you thought it was, underlying thought. Okay, back to walking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.